we have a couple different problems happening in this text. One of them is we have weddings completely unlike this in our world. This is not at all what we expect culturally. Last night, my girls all packed up in a car and drove to a wedding shower because in a couple weeks, we're going to have a wedding from some of our, our church family, and it'll be a time in which we celebrate and enjoy two people coming together in marriage. The ancient context is much different than ours, and it's helpful to understand that a little bit, but we have this story about these 10 virgins, and, and, and again, they're their virginity is not really essential. It's more like their bridesmaids would be kind of the idea that these are friends of the bride, probably associates of hers. And so we have the kingdom of God, verse 1 of chapter 25, compared to this. Like, what? what? Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God and entry into it to a wedding in ancient Israel. In this uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, a wedding had significant celebration. I'm always astounded by this. I have no idea what it looked like in some ways, but a wedding would happen over days. If you remember in John 2 when Jesus makes the water and and turns it into wine, it's because they had spent time hosting so much so that they're starting to run out of wine. And so, so oftentimes this type of wedding feast would happen for days. That's a legit party. I have no idea where everyone's sleeping and what happens, but I'm sure there's downtime. I mean, I can run for like maybe 36 hours straight, and then I crash. I can only imagine what a three- or four-day wedding feast would look like in terms of hospitality, bedding, food, and just keeping things interesting. Like on day two at my house, you got to be like, okay, this is boring. We're out. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Um, but this is, this is a significant event in the culture that a wedding would happen. So, so likely the background of the story is something like this. And Jesus isn't clear, and so we're trying to put together some pieces, um, that, that the, the groom would secure legally the wedding. And then he would go to the bride's house where her, the virgins in this text, where her bridesmaids would be waiting with her. The groom would get them and the entourage would go through the city, going to the groom's house where they would be setting up their new home together. And that's where that multi-day party would be happening. And so Jesus jumps into the middle of this and, and we look and there's this group of women waiting. And, and the 10, again, is probably not significant other than it seems to be a, just a common number that Jesus would use. Perhaps some people point out the number of completion. I doubt that. I think he's just pulling a number to help us think through what this looks like. So verse 1, kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. I know when I was a young person, I would read bridegroom and I would have no idea if it's the bride or the groom. (laughs) Bride's groom, and that is the groom. We could just drop the word bride and you would follow better. Okay, so these women are going to probably wait with the bride. She's not mentioned. Jesus is not trying to distract us with who the bride is and the theological details of that. He's just trying to help us to focus on this group. The groom here clearly represents Jesus Christ. And so we have have the groom somehow coming to these ladies, and they're supposed to be waiting eagerly for them. And the symbol of preparation he uses here is the, the torches or lamps. And so they're waiting. And they're waiting. 
Verse 2, five of them are foolish and five are wise. For the, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. And apparently they didn't prepare for um, any long stay or long period of waiting. The wise, though, they took flasks of oil with their lamps. So apparently they take a supply. Surprisingly, verse 5, the bridegroom, the groom, it is, was delayed. And they all became drowsy and slept. Now, they all slept. And so the wise virgins sleeping means that sleep is not the issue here. Right? Like, like Jesus has used the idea of sleeping or, or being awake and alert. This is not the point of this text. The point is that, that he has, the groom has delayed so long that, that it has pressed these ladies to a place where there's a clear division between foolish and wise. Verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Again, Jesus is showing us this is like the return of the Son of Man. If you were to go back to chapter 24, 1 Thessalonians, when the Son of Man returns, what noise comes with him? 1 Thessalonians 4 says, the shout of the archangel, the trumpet of God, this huge announcement, the Son of Man is coming. And likewise, in verse 6 here, that's not the Son of Man that's announced, it's the groom in the parallel. The groom's announced. So what do people do when the groom's announced? Well, they get ready. They pick up their stuff. He's here. He's, he's at the gates. Let's get ready. The foolish virgins grab their lamps, and what's wrong with their lamps now? There's no oil left. Look in the text again. So they get ready, verse 7, then all those virgins rose, and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Very sweetly worded request, isn't it? Give us some oil. Well, you know what's happened is the groom is here, and all of a sudden panic is setting in. Now, let's just consider if the groom represents Jesus, and they're waiting for Jesus, we might think they're ready. They, they, they know who the son is. They expect him to return. They're eagerly waiting for his return. And when he comes, they want to make themselves ready, except they're not ready. And so they scramble desperately, pleading with these other five wise women, saying, please give us some of your oil. The wise women, of course, cannot do this. Verse 10, they go to buy it. And apparently when, when they know there's a feast going on, the shops would stay out late, so this would be not culturally impossible. I mean, if someone comes to you at midnight and says, hey, can we go grab something? I mean, we now actually do have 24-hour stores, but oftentimes you're like, I'm sorry, I've got to wait till they open. You might have experienced that like on Christmas morning. <laughs> like people coming over and they're like, oh, no. Well, that's what's going on with these ladies, and they scramble. And they run to the stores, and they get oil. Verse 11 well, let's go back to verse 10. Those who were ready went with the groom to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. If you had read chapter 24, you might be thinking of Noah and the ark when the door was shut. And despite the clamoring and the pounding on the door, God would not let it become unsealed and open up to the people that were being rained upon when the floods were coming. And so to hear in this text, it's too late Verse 11, they're saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now, if this were a common wedding, I think we'd imagine the groom would open his doors. 
Right? What's a big room? Doesn't open the doors for like wedding participants. But the point of the analogy here takes a strange turn. Lord, Lord, open to us, verse 12, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Man, that is sobering, isn't it? I don't know you. And Jesus gives the, the parables point. Watch, therefore, so that you don't get locked out, so that you don't get excluded from the kingdom. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, when we look at a text like this, hopefully you get a better feel for kind of the, the, the cultural flow of what's going on in, in this passage. When we look at a text like this and we consider what's really happening, Jesus is making a stark contrast with what happened prior with the wicked servant in chapter 24. Do you recall that wicked servant? Okay, so, so when you look at these foolish virgins in this text, and you look at the wicked servant in the, servants in the previous text, in chapter 25, the wicked servant in the previous passage said something like this, my master's never coming back. There's never going to be a day of accountability. He won't come back in my lifetime, so I can party and do whatever I want. And he leverages God's people around him for his own pleasure because he thinks the master is never coming in his lifetime. Surprise, surprise, the master shows up, and he is in big trouble. You see, he thought he had forever to get his life in order. And the master shows up, it surprises him, and he gets judged. We come to this passage... And Jesus warns the opposite problem is also a concern. The first wicked servant had an extended, he's not coming back anytime soon type of theology. In chapter 25, these virgins aren't prepared for verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. The bridegroom was delayed. They weren't ready for a delay. They weren't ready for Maybe we're just going to make a real applicational thought right here. They weren't ready for a lifetime commitment to this groom. They had the type of simple belief system that thought they could simply make a, an overture, a simple claim. I think in our culture, we might think of it like this. They might think praying a prayer, but not living for the king was good enough. They did not have kind of a marathoner's approach to following the groom. They had a sprinter's approach. Right? Like, like I'm going to make a decision. It's kind of like New Year's resolutions. Can, can, can we just like honest confession here? How many of you have made a resolution and gotten it out of January successfully? <laughs> How many of you have made a resolution and failed to get it past January 31? I just want to see confession. Okay, for five of us. Five of us are total failures. You and me and three others. It is so easy to make spiritual commitments to the Lord. It is easy to make some type of decision towards the Lord that only is intended to be a surface decision. It is easy to sprint for Jesus. It is, we just talked about going to Indonesia. It would be great to go on a mission trip to Indonesia to eat crazy food for two weeks and come back home. That's easy. If I said, hey, you're going to go to Indonesia, 
You're going to lose your culture, your language, your people, your friends. And by the way, we need to sever a lot of connections back so that they don't know who you are and you can't come back for 40 years. You want to go? All of a sudden, our Christian world changes its idea of serving Jesus and it's going like, oh, that's super costly. I got to pray about this. We all know what that means. You're not going to pray about it. You're just not going to go. And Jesus has warned that discipleship has a steep cost. The difference between the wise and the foolish here is that the wise understand that they need to be ready for whatever the master has planned. And so when he comes later than expected, they're ready. You know what? If he had come earlier, they still would have had oil in their lamps. And that's, that's the point. Come down to verse 13. Watch therefore... Why? Because you don't know. You don't know if he's coming tomorrow. And you don't know if he will come in five generations where you will have passed away and your grandchildren, grandchildren, grandchildren will be living. You don't know. So how do you live then? I think Jesus is calling for us to recognize that the, the urge to follow him is noble, but it must be a commitment to follow him for life. Anything else is a false faith and a false profession. Because we don't know, we cannot presume that we can do a two-week sprint of Christianity and Jesus will come and find us faithful and we're good. And it's also sobering. I want you to go to the end of the text here in verse, uh, verse 8. The foolish said to the wise, give us something. They say, No. So, so they, there's not enough. They, they go out to the dealers to buy for themselves. The end of verse 9 and then verse 10. They go and buy it, but by the time they get there, there there's no recovery. There's a, there's a massive warning bell that Jesus is sounding for the Christian world, and that is there will never be enough time when you know Jesus is coming for you to make up for the lost time you've wasted. If you are not ready for him, when you hear the trumpet, it's over. And I would suggest to you that this is probably more significant for many people throughout past church history to recognize that the type of heart that sets itself against following Christ during its life does not quickly transform at the end either. As though I'm going to live my first 40 years for me and then try to land this thing on a deathbed confession and get into heaven. That is not how salvation works. And I think that's the concern that the Lord has, is that there can be this type of easygoing, sloppy, plastic Christianity or faith that has no root and no depth to it, and will not be ready for his return. I want to take you to the last phrases and just kind of pull apart this a little bit and challenge you to love your Lord. Look at verse 11. After the other virgins came... And they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. That's a theologically heavy word. And I don't think we do it justice. What does it mean for someone to be Lord in this culture? What does it indicate? And here, this is, remember, this is the foolish virgins. So, so just take a step back and recognize they see that Jesus Christ is the Lord. His response then is chilling. Right? Right? Depart, I don't know you. 
speaks to relationship. In other words, they know who his personage is, but they are not related to it correctly. I want to take you to two texts real quickly and, and try to challenge you with embracing the Lord your whole life. Let's go to Matthew 7 quickly. Matthew has not just launched this idea of lordship in his gospel as though this is the first time he's talking about it. So I'm going to suggest to you that he is actually using a broader concept of the idea of kind of kingship, in most, mostly in Matthew. But the idea of Lord aligns with it really strongly. Look in verse 7, and you see lordship, and you see the two-way street, a two-way street of it. Verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Okay? There's an element of lordship if we just stop right there. Who gives it? The Lord. What is your job? To ask for it. And, and in fact, you see this. Verse 11, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, there's a comparative here. I don't think God is telling us that we are evil toward our children, but the contrast is significant. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, the obligation of a Lord was to care for his household. And here, Jesus is calling upon us to recognize that we are cared for. And we have a responsibility to put ourselves under the care of our God. Who is responsible for caring for you? You think you got it covered? Autonomy has been, from the garden, one of the primary sins of pride and how we express it towards God. Go down a little further in this text. Verse 21. Who gets that type of care and provision? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one, excuse me, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. That sounds super familiar, doesn't it? Isn't that like the virgins? Isn't that what they say at the wedding to the groom? Lord, Lord, open up. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And let me just suggest to you two, two significant things that are happening in this passage in terms of lordship. The responsibility of a king in the Old Testament, I think the Lord in the New Testament, is to provide and care for and protect his servants. The obligation of the servants is to be loyal and obey. So here they say, you are our Lord, and the Lord says, if I'm your Lord, how come you never obey me? He says, well, we've done incredible spiritual things. We speak in tongues, we lay hands on people, and they get healed. We go to church every Sunday, and we give 20%. He's like, yeah, but your life is disobedient. You worker of lawlessness. See, he's not their Lord. I don't know you, the text says. Depart from me. Oh, they theologically know he's the Lord, just like the foolish virgins. 
they're not promised the provision and protection of ask and I will give. They're not, they're not promised the goodness of the Father. I mean, can you just go to verses 7 through 11 and just rest in the goodness of God? Look at what it says. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Of which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks him for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What is the anchor that causes you to know having the Lord as your Lord is worth it? If you then, being evil, how much more will he give good? Our God is so good. He is good. I mean, consider this, that in salvation, there is essentially a covenant relationship being established. You with me so far? And when I say covenant, I mean kind of contractual. You are vowing to give your whole self to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what type of person do you want to give yourself to? Where when he says, jump, you jump. The old adage, he says, jump, you say, how high? You're going to give that type of mastery over your life. What do you want his character to be? Don't you want him to be good? He knows before you ask what you have need of. And he says, ask, and I will will give it. If you need it to be open, I will open it. If you pursue it, I will make sure you find it because I am good. Why would the foolish virgins not come to him? Oh, they didn't think he was good. Can we just be honest? Most of you struggle with that just like me. We look at life and we look at what it has in front of us and we have these little moments of temptation where insurrection rises up within our hearts and we're like, nah, I have a better good to do. Don't tell me you don't think like that. I mean, there are times where you know a kind answer is the right answer, but an angry answer gets there faster. Right? You know that there are times where you should ask for forgiveness, but because you have also been wrong, you don't say it. You know that there are times to serve the Lord, but because you're tired, you don't. You know that retirement years offer you a wide open opportunity to give yourself to Jesus, but you have saved and worked so hard, so you're going to get an RV instead. You figure high school is the time to just mess around, and you'll get serious about God later. And in all those ways, we are denying his goodness like foolish girls who don't believe the groom is worth some extra oil. 
the call to be ready is ignored by these foolish virgins because they don't actually love the groom. They just want to party. I'm going to take you to another text because this is, how do you battle to have that marathoner spirit? Right? Like, like how do you get there where you resist temptation? How do you get to the place where despite the pull and the attraction of sin, you choose right? John 15 is one of those texts that if it's not well-worn in your Bible, uh, you need to spend some time there. It can be a little bit confusing. It's worth sorting through. I want to just take you to verse 9 and, and the following verses after that. So I want to press on this foolishness of people to doubt the goodness of our Savior. Okay. I just want to give you a little bit of a backdrop here. The Father loves Jesus. You with me? What did the Father also ask Jesus to do? Okay. I'm just getting there. Does that seem good? Okay? We got to wrestle with that because that's one of the problems. We see stuff like that in the Bible where God asks us to do something. He is our Lord, we say, and the Lord says something like, well, get up on your cross and die. We're like, oh, clearly I've misunderstood that you're not good. Right? Like, like does, is the Father good in sending Jesus to the cross? Verse 9, John 15, as the Father has loved me. So have I loved you. Now let me just stop here. The same father that sent him to the cross. If that's how the father loves Jesus, and Jesus says, so I love you, could it be that he might send some of us to our metaphorical crosses? And it's still, according to Jesus' love. Continue on then. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you hear the ring of lordship there? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Okay, so stop for just a moment here. How do we stay centered in the spotlight of his love? Oh, this is so ignored, right? How do you stay in the center of his love for you? How do you pursue his love for you? Read the text again if you don't know. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Not love for me, but his love for you. If you keep my commandments, you abide in it. So how do, we, how do we rightly relate in sweet fellowship with our Lord? He tells us how to live. And when we live how he tells us to, we are securely in the center of his love. And our reasoning, which Jesus calls foolish in Matthew 25, is saying, whoa, 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 not to that cross. And Jesus is warning us, there are commands I give you 
that with human reasoning and human experience and human expectation, you will think I'm the one incorrect. I am the one unloving. But if you want to stay in the center of my love, obey me. This is not some legalistic type of obedience. This is not a regulated obedience. This is an obedience that says, I want to remain in sweet fellowship with the one I love, the one who I know is good. How do you know he's good? He died for you. And do you think the one who died for you wants to hurt you needlessly? Do you think the one who has secured you from all eternity is somehow unaffected by your pain? Keep reading. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your, what? Joy might be full. That is a hard, hard ask from our Savior. Because here's what he's asking us to do by faith. He is asking us, and if we just use Jesus as the, as the example here, because he does, he says, I obeyed my Father and remained in his love, and I think we could then extend it so that Jesus would have full joy. Now, by any earthly measuring tape, most people look at Jesus and say, well, don't give me that joy. Right? Well, that's where faith comes in. Do you believe that Jesus, when he asks us to do life his way, is doing so because he loves you, and because he wants you to experience his fullness of joy. Do you believe that? You see, the lordship of Christ is not the, the taskmaster of someone who hates you. But it is someone who is king. He's unapologetically king and commander over everyone who loves him. But his commands are actually an expression of love for you as well. It doesn't feel like it. And so the battle of faith happens in those moments where obedience is energized by confidence that he is good. And he is leading us to joy. So that when your teenager does the stupid thing that your six-year-old doesn't do, your response is energized not by your sinful nature but you knuckle it under by a heart of faith and say, no, I will honor Jesus here rather than vent my anger or complain or hurt her with my words. I will follow the king. So it should energize giving $5 or $50,000 on a Sunday morning. Not like, well, if I get 50000 then the pastor has to do what I tell him to do. No, what energizes your giving is Jesus is king over me, and he is good. And he has urged me to do this in his word, and he is good. And this hurts a lot. And so the 10-year-old says, five bucks, Jesus. You're worth it. You're good. And you call me to give because you're good. And you call me to give for your Love so that I live in your joy because I love you because you're good and you are my Lord. 
five foolish virgins were not willing to live as though he was Lord. And so they give him a title, but they don't live as though he's Lord. They might have been willing to be visitors in his house for a few weeks, but they did not want to live in the house of the Lord. They would rather not live in the love of Christ and have their freedom. The Puritan Matthew Henry says this, they will see their need of grace hereafter. When it should save them is when they want it. But they will not see their need of grace now when it should sanctify and rule them. These virgins are pounding on the kingdom's doors because the sun comes. But they did not want the sun to rule until he comes. So the question I think the virgins teach us in this text is, do you live the marathoner's life of every day sanctifying the Lord over your heart? Do you preach to yourself he is good He is my king, and I will obey him. I will pursue his love and live in his joy because he's my king. Or perhaps you have a little bit of a legalistic view. I mean, when you look at the commands of Jesus in John 15, why does he give them? Because he loves us and he wants us to move to joy. The legalist thinks he's bribing Jesus. Right? Like, if I'm good, I get stuff. That's like the way an employer works. Do you think anyone at Walmart thinks the CEOs living in what is it, Mississippi care a thing about the people here in Bakersfield? They care about them because they want them to work harder. That's all they care about. They want their employees to show up, work hard, go home, and come back the next day fresh so they can work hard again. And what do they get in return? Probably like $15.50 an hour. That is legalism. It's a contractual arrangement where you do something for someone else and get something in return. Jesus asks us to give ourselves to him because we love him and pursue his love. That is not legalism. I mean, think about a marriage working like that. Okay, honey, I will will vacuum if you do the kitchen. You burn the food, I'm going to throw stuff on the carpet and undo my vacuuming. I will tell you, if that's how your marriage is, I'm available for appointments during the week. You're going to need help. That is not a lasting marriage, nor is it a loving one. Our Lord calls us to something much more severe. The employees, probably the people who hate Walmart Walmart the most are the ones getting paid by it, honestly. Does that engender love for the store to pay people fifteen fifty an hour? Do you think the employees love Walmart? Probably not. If you want your wife to love you, you don't have a contractual agreement with her that you give her care when she pleases you. You give yourself for her, like Christ gave himself for the church. And you love her, and you sacrifice for her. And you trust her to love you in return. And she will love you in return probably much better men than you love her. And you give yourself for her like Christ gave himself 
This is how love works. And Christ calls us to love him as Lord and to see that his love leads us to submit and obey him in all ways as Lord so that when he comes, he says, welcome, you're mine. Going back to that text in Matthew, Jesus' words are sobering. They say, Lord, Lord. He says what? I never, I do not, what? That's a relationship word, right? I mean, that's the same word that's used as a euphemism for sexual intimacy. It's a type of word that speaks to close relationship. I do not know you. You want to be ready for Jesus? Love the lovely Savior. Live for the Savior whose commands are leading you to joy. Trust in his goodness. Now, there are some people here who are like, what is going on? Because you don't know how good Jesus is. You don't understand that the Jesus who commands us to trust him and make him Lord is the one who sees you lost in your sin, heading for an eternal destruction, and instead comes to earth, is born as a baby, lives a perfectly righteous life, and dies on the cross to pay the price of your sin. He does that so that turning to him and pledging your love to him, you would be rescued by trusting in him and repenting of your sin, and he saves you forever as his precious ones. This is the love he has for you. He dies for sinners. And if he is not your king, the wisest and best thing you can do today is kneel before him in prayer and say, Jesus, be my king and save me from my sin. If you've never done that, and he is not your king, then when he comes, the door will be shut. If you're playing a game, if you've prayed a prayer, but there's no love for Jesus, no desire to obey him, and no true trust in his goodness and in his death for you, then today, turn to Jesus. Don't leave without praying and asking for forgiveness. Do not leave without pledging your life to him. Do not leave undone the work of coming before the king and making him your king forever. Don't leave without it. I am very worried that Christianity is very easy for our little ones. They pray a prayer, and mom and dad pat them on the back and say, oh, I'm so glad you prayed, now you're saved. I think there are five foolish virgins that would say that didn't work. A heart pledged to walking in fellowship with the king as king is the mark of those who are ready for his return. Are you guys ready? Is he your king? If you have never, if you need to restore, if you need to get right before we stand and sing, while I pray, ask God to work. If you need to be renewed in your devotion, your commitment to obedience, do that now as we pray. Father in heaven, your goodness is poured out 
in the text of Scripture. Your unfailing love. Your persistent faithfulness to your people. Your willingness to forgive and to cleanse us from our sin. That you tell us you will always be faithful to do for those who come and confess it is so unlike our world. Your choice to love us cost you your son. His righteous life and death on the cross was an expression of profound sacrifice. And it tells us of a deep love that is not superficial, will never fade away, and it, it stands behind every command, no matter how difficult it is for us to believe it's for our good. It is for our good because it comes from your good hand. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to acknowledge the lordship of Christ and to love it, to pursue him as the one who loves our souls, and to pursue his will as an expression of our devotion to him and of his love for us. Lord, help us to seek the joy that comes to those who walk with the Savior. In these ways, Lord, I know you equip us so that when he returns, that same fellowship will naturally lead us into eternity where we will continue in the joy of our Lord. Father, for those who do not even understand how good it is to know Jesus and how sweet it is to be forgiven, I ask that you'd be, bring forgiveness to their heart today, that you would turn them to look to Jesus and to trust in the same goodness that led him to the cross to continually lead them down the good path in days to come. Help them to turn from sin that will destroy their soul, corrupt their spirit, and bring damnation forever, and to turn to the Savior who has died for them. Lord, I pray that in our church, you would energize us to love you and to live for you. Give our homes the sweet grace of forgiveness. Give our homes the discipline of choosing obedience to our Lord rather than giving in to what feels good. Help us to turn away from what is natural, is lazy, and is simple, and to devote ourselves to love and to good works so that Jesus is honored in our lazy time, in our off time, in our discouraged time. Lord, I pray that we would turn instead and trust Jesus, that we would do right, we'd be obedient. And we look to the one who loves us as our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.